This is the EWN Podcast Network. Welcome to Late Boomers, our podcast guide to creating your third act with style, power, and impact. Hi, I'm Kathy Worthington. And I'm Mary Elkins. Join us as we bring you conversations with successful entrepreneurs, entertainers, and people with vision who are making a difference in the world. Everyone has a story, and we'll take you along for the ride on each interview, recounting the journey our guests have taken to get where they are, inspiring you to create your own path to success. Let's get started. Hi, I'm Kathy Worthington. And I'm Mary Elkins. Today on our Late Boomers podcast, we are welcoming the novelist Sarah Faring, author of two young adult fantasy novels called The Tenth Girl and White Fox. Today we will be discussing her latest release, White Fox. Sarah Faring is a multilingual Argentine-American fascinated by literary puzzles. After working in investment banking at J.P. Morgan, she worked at Penguin Random House. She holds degrees from the University of Pennsylvania in International Studies and from the Wharton School of Business. She was born in Los Angeles and currently lives in New York City. I would like to share one reviewer's quote on White Fox. Quote, White Fox fills you with luscious dread. Faring's prose is a fever dream. Her rich setting and poignant exploration of sisterhood and family ties had me racing to get to the end of the tale. End quote. Sarah, say hello to our listeners and tell us about your path to becoming a novelist. You left college with a job at a top Wall Street firm and subsequently left that job for a career in writing. Did you have fears about making that change to a more risky career? And how did you make that change? My goodness. Well, Good first one. of all, thank you so much, Kathy and Mary, for having me. This is such a honor and a pleasure. Um, I have many thoughts about those career changes. I so I was throughout college on the track to, you know, get one of these Wall Street jobs that I hoped I would be in forever, that would be very stable and make a lot of money for me and future family. And um, I pretty quickly realized while I was working there that I wasn't altogether that interested in finance and the atmosphere and the people I was around weren't people I wanted to spend a lifetime with. And then it was sort of another person's dream and not mine. I won't point any fingers. It may or may not have been my dad. Um, <laughs> and I decided that I needed to pivot. So I reached out to a wonderful professor at Wharton. His name is Adam Grant. He, he wrote a book with Sheryl Sandberg um, and writes a lot about like organizational behavior and psychology. And he made a recommendation to me, which was, you used to be so interested in books as a kid, what about going into publishing? And it really hadn't even occurred to me, which is strange to say now, but um, I loved reading so much as a child. And it was something that, you know, as I went to through high school and college, I just didn't have much time for it. And obviously there are other, you know, really exciting mediums right now, like film and TV. And most of my free time probably went to those. Um, but I, I recognize that the perfect antidote to this 
to this era of shortened attention spans and a lot of stress and anxiety for people would be to immerse myself back in this world of books because I feel like when you're reading a book and in my case, when you're writing a book, um, everything else sort of melts away and your brain, it almost calms down and it goes onto the wavelength that this author has set, uh, which I, I really loved. So I ended up sending this absolutely absurd cover letter um, to a person at Random House who worked in a, in a business department. And it said, I know that I have no experience appropriate for this role and that this is gonna come completely out of the blue, but I loved books as a kid. They were my life. And I hope I can prove to you that I'll be an amazing hire. And this, to my surprise, actually got me an interview with this person. And she ended up being my future boss. And I worked for the Knopf Doubleday Publishing Group at Random House. Um, and it was an incredible experience because once again in my life, I had access to so many books and it was part of my job to read them. So I was reading really widely and reaping the benefits of sort of being immersed in literature again which I could feel in every way. I mean, my everything from my mood improved to my relationships with others and even myself. Um, and I realized that I'd been missing books for a long time. But pretty soon I started to get the itch, which I'd had as a kid to write. So I would secretly write at my desk um, when I had completed my tasks for the you know morning, afternoon, day. And, you know, peeking over my shoulder to make sure my boss couldn't see me. So I'm, I'm sorry to admit this on the podcast, but um, <laughs> it's beautiful. Eventually, I, I finished a book and um, it was the first time I'd really done that for years and years. I'd been able to, you know, as a kid, get to a certain point and then I get tired of it, get bored, give it up. But this time I finished it and I send it out cold to a bunch of different agents just by going on just by going online and cold querying. I mean, in both of these cases, moving from banking to publishing and publishing to being an author, I really, it was all about just trawling the internet for me. It didn't even come down to connections, which kind of surprised me coming from business because I thought so much of my success in the world would come down to people I had met or networked with. I mean, that's yeah. really ingrained in you. But yeah, this was a cold query to an agent and after a lot of rejections, I got an email at 2 a.m. one morning from an agent saying, I just devoured this book. I need to represent it. We need to work together. Oh, um, it was wow. incredible. It was really, <laughs> it was quite Warms a moment. my heart. Oh, yeah. Oh, <laughs> yeah. And you've had tremendous success publishing two novels now while still in your 20s. You, you mentioned that while you were young, you were devouring novels and secretly writing. Did you think you'd be a published author when you were growing up? Oh my gosh, to be honest, no. I, I had this idea that it, it just being an author that felt so remote and I thought maybe when I'm 50 or 60 or 70, I'll be lucky enough to be able to publish a book. Um, and so no, this is a complete surprise and I'll, be honest that I probably wouldn't have reached the conclusion that I needed to pivot and sort of begin a new act so young were it not for the fact that 
at the time, I had a lot going on with family and friends, and some of them were ill, and it just completely reshuffled my priorities. And that's sort of what shook me awake and sort of, I don't know, I just felt this very strong inner voice saying, it's time to make a change in your life. And I, I feel very lucky that happened when I was in my 20s. So. You're so lucky. <laughs> and, and you mentioned earlier that you had a teacher who, who encouraged you. Did, have you had a lot of teachers that encouraged the writing and creative process? And also, what writers that you've read and stories or themes have stayed with you and influenced you? Oh, I love that. Um, so I would say for my first two books, I've definitely been very influenced by Shirley Jackson. I adore her work. It is beyond being just so atmospheric and unique. I think she does a wonderful job of taking these very creepy narratives and these and these very troubled characters and sort of forcing a reader to, through this narrative of the scary story, look at these sort of hitting corners in themselves, you know, to reconsider who you are. And I love books that, you know, there's one read on the surface, but they also get you thinking about, you know, bits of your own life that you haven't really considered in either a long time or from a certain angle. Um, so I adore her. Uh, let's see what else. I really love, um, so actually the uh, winner of the Nobel Prize in Literature, Kazuo Ishiguro from last year, he, his book, Never Let Me Go. Um, he also wrote Remains of the Day, which I think is probably his best known book um, and was an excellent movie, but um, Never Let Me Go. I don't wanna spoil the twist, but it's essentially about these boarding school kids who um, grow up together in a boarding school that really values their, their art and wants to see just how far they can sort of develop that in themselves but there's a really eerie twist that explores what it means to be a human and what it means to have a soul. Um, and yeah, I mean, he's just terrific. And then, I'm for sure going to read that. Oh yeah. my gosh. You will love it. It actually was made into a movie with um, Kira Knightley too, but the book is, is way better yeah, as much as I love Kira Knightley. <laughs> I've been <laughs> taking notes on what, on the people that you've yeah, been talking me too. about. So I oh can my gosh, write yes. them, read them too. Me too. <laughs> Um, and now, okay, I'm, I'm blanking on your first Writers, question, stories, teachers. Themes, oh, teachers, themes. Um, so something else that I really like about Kazuo Ishiguro's work is that he does something really interesting, which he is obsessed with the theme of memory. And throughout his novels, he explores it in different ways, almost in writing in different genres with different styles. So he has a book called The Buried Giant as well, which is more of a fantasy. Um, set in like an almost Arthurian time. Um, these are all adult literary fiction, I will say. Um, so I, I find it very interesting to watch how when an author is obsessed with certain themes, how they evolve over throughout the body of their work. Um, so for me, right now, I would say tangled family dynamics and how that affect you you know, as you move through the world, that's something that really interests me and probably will be a big piece of my work, um, as well as grief and sort of remaining hopeful throughout grief and and loss and difficult situations that all of us will go through. Um, that's definitely an obsession. And okay, I'll pivot to teachers, um, which actually I have a bit of a funny story. 
uh, which is that when I was growing up, I did have some wonderful teachers, but what stuck with me were the teachers who had something negative to say about my writing. <laughs> Be it, I remember someone once said, a teacher was like, you know, you're really trying to do a great job here, but like, you're just so florid and over the top. And it's like, you're trying to be Gore Vidal, which at the time I had no idea what, what that was even trying to say. I was way too young, but, um, so that, was elementary, was, younger, that was elementary school, elementary school, I bet. Probably. I'm betting. Um, it was, <laughs> it was very motivating though. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't think I'm motivated the same way as an adult by that kind of negative, uh, but back then, absolutely, it pushed me. But I was lucky to have a professor like Adam Grant, who, you know, sometimes you you have a mentor who's able to just shed everything in a new light for you. And um, that's really powerful. Perfect. And I, I know. wanted to ask you. And we were talking. Oh, sorry. Oh, okay. I wanted, to ask, I wanted to ask her who... Who do you think has been the most positive influence then in your writing career, whether it was an author, a family, oh. a friend, a special book? What was the most positive influence? Um, I, someone immediately came to mind, and I, I'm not just saying this because I hope that she'll listen to this podcast, but definitely my mother, um, without a doubt, from day one was really supportive of every sort of wacky pivot scheme I had. I mean, for the average parent, I mean, even if I was a parent, if I was told by my child who had just spent years and years and years pursuing this really top finance job that they wanted to ditch all of that and start afresh, I probably would have said, really? Um, but to her credit, she, she either knows me well enough or just had enough had enough faith or confidence in me that I would be able to persevere through the through the obstacles that were definitely in front of me. I mean, the reality is when it comes to writing as Kathy, I'm sure you know with acting and, and a lot of creative pursuits, it's just really the people who succeed are the ones who don't give up because there are just so many obstacles. It's that determination that keeps you, you know, otherwise, I don't know. So yes, without oh, I her love that answer. support. <laughs> that is I love that so answer. True. Being a mom myself, I couldn't hear a better answer. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and you have a wonderful mom in, the, in uh, White yes. Fox too. I'd oh, love to yes. know how you structure your writing life, you know, your discipline. Yeah. And, and also you, you touched on this earlier, but how did you transition from a right brain job in business to a left brain career? Yeah. And and along the, a different line, do you ever have days when you get stuck? I guess some would call it writer's block. And what do you do about it? Oh, my goodness. That's a wonderful question, because as I draft my next book, which is it's really challenging me in fresh ways. I've had to face periods of what I could definitely call writer's block. And I think that that goes hand in hand with um, structuring your day, how to overcome writer's block. So for me, one little tip that I'd love to share with anyone out there who is struggling with something like that, um, that has been enormously helpful for me is, and it'll sound simple, but it's setting a 15 minute timer and telling yourself, 
all I have to do is open this document of my novel and look at it for 15 minutes, tinker with it for 15 minutes, and then I can leave it. I don't have to look at it. I can move on. I've done my duty. And what I've found is that once you're 15 minutes in, you end up being sucked into the story enough or sucked into the work enough that you end up working for at least an hour. And I thought this might just be me, but I have had several friends test it now. And it's almost like you just have to give yourself permission to, to open the document and maybe not be this you know, virtuoso who has you know, the words just flying out of them. It's okay to just look at it. It's okay to just brainstorm for an hour even. Just give yourself permission to do whatever kind of work you're able to do that day because there's so many different kinds of work when it comes to writing. And to speak to another one of your questions about right brain versus left brain, what I found is that actually being a, being a published author especially, but even before then, um, such a huge part of it was strategizing when it comes to you know author brand and how to get your book out there and how you want to approach getting published how you want to approach working with your publisher ideas you want to propose to them through your agent um and so much of our our job right now as an author is to promote our own work via social media and other you know platforms that um something that i do now which i've just started doing this year actually after I struggled last year a lot to kind of switch between those two sides of the brain, um, I try to do a week on and a week off, which easier said than done, but I'll try to schedule all of my business related work. In other words, promotional things or um, you know, a, an interview with someone, I'll try to, or an event, a virtual event, which now those are obviously very big. I'll try to schedule those during one week so that I'm sort of in that energy mode, I'm ramped up. And then the next week I can just devote myself to writing and I can kind of become that stereotype of the writer sloth, you know, who doesn't change their clothing for days and sink into the story, um, which obviously it's a privilege to be able to do that. But even if during your free time each week, you can say, okay, this is my week where during my free hour in the morning or my free hour in the afternoon to devote to this project, I'm only going to do this kind of work. That could be a good way to go about it. Great, wow. great advice. Thank you. I'm, I'm going to try and follow that. Yes, Mary is working on her first novel. That's so exciting. So, I can't wait. <laughs> <laughs> Neither can I. <laughs> and Sarah, you are so talented with the power of your words in creating atmospheric novels. I enjoyed 10th Girl when that was first out. And today we want to talk about White Fox, your second book. And here's a quote. It is a great mystery read that is equal parts spooky and magical end quote. How did you come up with the magical setting that is the fantastical island place Phylloxen? Ooh, I love this question. Um, so for me, this entire story, so the White Fox as a book, um, was sort of born from this experience I had when I was 17, 18, where I learned a family secret that just completely changed my perception of my family and of myself. Um, and it was this really thrilling, but also very raw time in my life where just felt like every, every new piece of information I discovered was, was kind of 
forcing me to reconsider who I was as a person. And obviously when you're that age, that's, you know, a huge part of the day to day in and of itself. Um, so because of that, I knew that that would be a theme for this book. And I knew that I wanted to pick a setting that would feel as sort of unfamiliar um, and a little bit eerie to the reader because it is fictional, it is invented. There are these little spooky hidden you know, nooks to it um, as this experience felt to me and to my protagonist, the sisters in my book who are going through something very similar as they unravel the mystery behind their mother's disappearance. Um, so for me, setting an atmosphere that's so woven together with, with the themes I want to explore and they have to directly serve those themes. Um, so besides just being, you know, an eerie fall read, I really wanted it to kind of leave readers a bit on edge. Like this place is in a world that's familiar to me. So it's not outright fantasy per se, but it's something's a bit different. There's magic on the fringes. There's something a little bit weird. And that I hope will cause readers to kind of take a look at their own lives through a different bit of a different lens. Yeah, you created an entirely new world, which is terrific because the reader can get lost there. And you've also done an amazing job creating the characters that really live and breathe. As you mentioned, the sisters, the relationship between your main characters, is it Thais, who's also known as Ty, and Manon, also known as Noni. It's pivotal to the book. And also, we love the description of Ty having, and I'm going to quote what she said, what she said, (laughs) beautiful gemstones of stories that she sharpened to points, unquote. That may be you, <laughs> but also, <laughs> how did you come up with the idea to have two different people telling the story from their viewpoints? Yeah, I so I've, I've always found it fascinating, um, books that have multiple points of view, um, but I thought it was especially ideal for a story of sisters, especially sisters who, at the beginning of the book, are more or less estranged and definitely don't see eye to eye and approach the world from very different angles. I mean... We have the older sister, um, Manon or Nani, she, she is a very much an introvert and you know, is not on social media, is very reserved, is very much in her own head and contemplative, cerebral. And her younger sister, Tai, is to some degree this influencer that now feels familiar to a lot of us, who is, you know, craves attention and is really a sparkling personality and tries to be a joy to be around for everyone. Um, And I'll be completely honest, for me, a lot of this book was exploring those two sides of myself and those two sides of a lot of young people in this day and age who feel like they have to craft this brand and this persona to move about society, which, you know, is a society that definitely values extroverts and people who are, you know, easy to get along with and so on, understandably. Um, And uh, this other side, which I feel like more and more, we're seeing stories of teenagers and young people who, I mean, are just, I I know there's studies that like, aren't going out to parties as much, you know, I'll say it, aren't like having as much sex, aren't 
you know, doing whatever previous generations might have done out and about, they're actually staying inside more and living through this virtual world more and more. Um, so I thought it'd be kind of interesting to explore that dichotomy. Um, but beyond that, I've always, always, always loved the dynamic between siblings because I feel like so often a younger sibling will start to sort of establish their identity in contrast with an older sibling and who that older sibling is. Um, and I thought that that would be incredibly interesting to explore, especially in the shadow of two parents who in the story are larger than life in very different ways. Um, and to some degree, my sisters in this book are a little bit stunted because they have, you know, their mother disappeared when they were young and they haven't been in contact with her and their father, they're more or less estranged from. So all they have in their immediate family is each other. And all they, the only way they've learned to define themselves is by being the opposite of her sister. Um, so I think that's, yeah, that's really what I was trying to go for with my sisters. I keep calling them this and I shouldn't because I know it's a little confusing since it's what, very much sisters? a novel. Yeah. yeah, we're just my sisters, but. Ah, that's revealing, <laughs> but I love that. Yeah. The character of Noni has anxiety, which she describes as fizzing pennies, which I found so intriguing. It was recurring and I kept wondering about it. And I wanted to ask you, how did that come about? Yeah, I, so I've always been um, very intrigued by the different ways that authors try to make, um, let's say, symptoms of mental illness come alive because I think for people who don't suffer from anxiety or depression, these, these can feel very remote. And a really important part of, of literature, I think, is to kind of allow for readers to have empathy for people who have, you know, either be it mental illness or sort of situations that the reader themselves could never be in. Um, so for me, as someone who has uh, suffered from anxiety in the past, I thought that that was a perfect way to kind of kind of get incorporate all of the senses in this experience, which is very much a full body experience for people who suffer from anxiety. Um, and then it's also some it's also a way that a young person, so let's say a very young child, would be able to put words to this very overwhelming experience. Um, so, and I think that to some degree, um, because Nani suffered from anxiety as a child and had this really deep connection with her mother, who was one of the only people who knew how to help her sort of deal with it and move through it, um, she likes to think of it in those terms as the fizzy pennies, even as she you know, turns 18, because it sort of reaffirms this connection she has with her mother, who she hasn't seen in a decade. So do you think... I'm a, I, I kind of forget, did the mother give her that term or she came up with the fizzing pennies? Um, I think she came up with the term and sort of expressed it to her mom that way. And I, I don't know if it's still in the book, but at one point um, I had a little snippet that was basically about um, Mireille. So their mother had gone abroad for you know press tour in the US and brought back coins from the United States. And um, Nani had put a penny from the United States in her mouth and felt this, you know, like coppery weird sensation. And it was almost like the closest thing that she could 
equate with the experience of anxiety in her body. So I, that might have been cut, but that's sort of where that came from. Oh, that's that's really. I think it might have been because when the fizzing pennies came up, <laughs> I kept dwelling on it, and it, I kept going. <laughs> Who made this up? Did Sarah make this up? I love it. Yeah. <laughs> it's really a good expression. Yeah. That's, yeah. It's a great expression. Thank you. Um, you, you have a lot of wonderful expressions in the book. Um, and this book, it's, it's a young adult book in the YA category, which are people from 14 to 18. And yet, reading it, it was so sophisticated. There was, there's no way I was that sophisticated <laughs> at between 14 and 18, but it's sophisticated not only in its use of language, but its structure. And both Kathy and I are curious, um, does your publisher tell you what is allowed for that ca character, excuse me, for that category? And um, are there any specific rules for that category? Thank you so much for saying all of those wonderful things. Um, so I, I'm very lucky because for my first two books, I worked with an incredible editor at Macmillan named Erin Stein. And um, she is, she essentially allowed me to keep everything that I wanted in these two books. And a lot of them do push the boundaries of what is I don't want to say acceptable for young readers because we all know young readers who are going out there and reading adult books, be it in school or just on their own oh. for fun. Um, but let's, let's say, let's just as an example, um, curse words. So for upper YA, I think that, I mean, if you've, if you know many 16, 17, 18 year olds, like I think you'd be hard pressed to find one who isn't like throwing in at least the occasional curse word when talking with friends. Um, so I think that when it comes to something like that, it makes sense to be true to life. Um, and I also believe that when we're, you know, this age 16 to 18 and beyond, we are learning so much about ourselves and it's such a, the, uh, such a raw and emotional period um, that I, I, I wanted to be true to that as well. And I wanted to explore the depths of their experience. And at least for, for Nani, who is a writer, I was able to go a little bit deeper than maybe the typical 18 year old might um, because it felt true to her character. And for her younger sister, Ty, I took a different approach um, because she wouldn't be the kind of person who would necessarily be so introspective. Um, but what I found is that I find it really exciting to assume you're writing to the smartest reader in the world, to the smartest 14 year old in the world. And, um, and I think that everyone sort of, they'll rise to reach that level. I mean, I think that they, I think that people really want to, A, as teens read about kids who are a little bit older than themselves. I think that's just fascinating for them. Um, but I think that, I don't know. I, I, re I remember when I was a kid and I, I've definitely spoken to teenagers who they don't like feeling condescended to. So they'd rather sort of feel like they're being stretched a bit. Um, and something that's really fun actually is there are such robust online communities of readers and teen readers who share notes and exchange thoughts on books. Um, so there's a lot of room to kind of explore 
what they thought about me kind of pushing those boundaries and what they got out of the book and what didn't work for them and what did. And I know that for my first book, The Tenth Girl, um, there are some aspects that are a bit controversial. And this invited a lot of discussion with a lot of different readers. But I think, I mean, I have to be honest, I felt really gratified because even if my book wasn't your cup of tea, it still got some of these conversations going with friends. Um, so, right. So I think that there are different types of authors for young readers and I'm going to be the one who sort of pushes those boundaries a bit more, I think. That's fabulous. <laughs> I was really interested in the way the White Fox movie script in the book is such a large part of the mystery and how it's integrated and interspersed into the novel. How did you manage that? Oh, yeah. I So actually, the White Fox script, I was one of the first parts I put together in the book. And I knew I wanted it to be a mixed media book. So there are, besides parts of this script, there are snippets of articles that the girls um, discover, you know, explaining little tidbits about their mother. Um, and what I like about that is as a reader and a writer, I love allowing the reader to be a bit of a detective on their own. In other words, to kind of read between the lines and figure out what's going on for themselves and how that sort of either contrasts or is in line with what the protagonists think is going on. Um, that I think adds some really juicy tension. Um, and a big part of this book is the girls discovering who they are, who their mother is. And because they haven't seen her in 10 years, all they have to go on is their very faded and unreliable memories. And all of these outside sources with different degrees of reliability. Um, and so it becomes a very layered experience and they have to wade through all of these opposing you know, ideas of who she was and who they are. Uh, so that was great fun. But the script itself, um, that was a very challenging but fun exercise because it's such a different medium. Um, and I thought, what a perfect way to incorporate a little bit of this magic on the fringes idea that I really love in books without it being disorienting and feeling like too much of a departure from the real world. That was really, really interesting. And um, I was telling Kathy the other day, I thought part of it reminded me in a way of the way the dialogue was waiting for Godot because you had oh my gosh, these different characters communicating, but in a very, very sparse way. And it, it was just fascinating. But um, I'm also intrigued as to the way the folklore of the mythical island, Veloxen, is woven into the story. And you touched on this earlier. Uh, one reviewer said, and I'm going to quote, it drips with ethereal atmosphere between the ominous forest, luxurious city center, and dilapidated mansion. Can you talk more about the language and culture that you created? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, so something I've, I've, from a very young age, absolutely adored um, fairy tales and folklore, because I feel like there are some very universal truths at the core of these very bizarre stories. And it's just, it's very illuminating because it's so different from our world, but they're very emotionally impactful, um, even to children. 
And so I knew I wanted to weave a lot of Mediterranean folklore that I'd heard as well as folklore from around the world and sort of build up this idea of this, of this sort of lost misty Mediterranean island that shares a lot from cultures in the area, but is also very much its own. Um, founded, you know, in the 1400s really by a group of different sort of shipwreck sailors who'd arrived from different cultures. And, and it was a lot of fun to explore this idea of the parents of my characters who one of them is a pharmaceutical tycoon who owns this giant business on the island and their mother is this world famous film star. And it was interesting to see them create their home on this island, create this mythology around themselves that's also based on the folklore of the island and attempt to create almost like this Camelot, you know, almost like this ideal place where they thought they could fix the world's ills and have all of these programs and create this ideal society. Um, so I thought with a closed setting like this island, I can really dig deep and explore all these kinds of folklore and tie it into the present day and what the parents hope to do, you know, for modern society on this island. Hmm. That's great. It's, that's a great explanation. Oh, I'm really glad we asked that question. Yeah. <laughs> Since I read The Tenth Girl before reading this one, I was very pleased to find the Easter eggs that you put into White Fox making reference to the world of Tenth Girl. And one of these is when the character of Teddy describes a video game designed by their company. What gave you the idea to reference the world of Tenth Girl in this book? Uh, so it's twofold. Uh, there are some authors like David Mitchell who he wrote Cloud Atlas, um, which was also made into a uh, very interesting movie. Um, and uh, the history of authors who basically they work in a universe of their own where it might be very similar to our world. So it's not as if, you know, this is Lord of the Rings and it's its own sort of universe, but um, they have their own universe and there are recurring characters. And not only is it does it make it sort of fun as an author to sort of deepen your exploration of certain characters in a new book? Because we're only allotted, you know, so many pages in one book for those characters. But it's also just this really, really satisfying wink at devoted readers. And I've, I've had the privilege of meeting a lot of really devoted readers of all ages since my first book came out. And it's, I mean, it brings me a lot of joy to see their reactions to finding these Easter eggs. So I think I'm gonna keep trying to do that forever. <laughs> That's a great concept. It um, certainly I, I is. Actually, I actually wish more authors did that, but maybe it's a really new thing. It's like <laughs> kind of an Elon Musk kind of put the Easter egg things in the cars that people don't know about. <laughs> it's very modern day, I think. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, Sarah, it's so poignant that the two sisters are trying to solve the mystery of their mother's disappearance when they were very young. The persona you created for the mother, Murai, the, she is so dynamic. Who or what inspired that? Oh, I love that question. Um, I would say there were many different sources of inspiration. Um, on the On the very, very surface, I was at the beginning thinking of an actress a bit like Marion Cotillard, um, 
but that's kind of just on a superficial level. I think beyond that, I've, I've always been fascinated by these celebrities that I would say were more, I'm not even sure that they really exist anymore, nor can they be created anymore, just because social media has kind of broken that fourth wall down. So because celebrities are able to have more of a hand in crafting their brand and getting in touch with readers and not readers, whoops, and getting in touch with fans. Um, I think that it's really, it can be really difficult for them to build up that mythology for themselves. And so I was thinking more of like a classic film star, um, you know, even, even from sort of like a, let's say a Julia Roberts era. So we're not talking classic, classic, we're talking recent A-list celebrities um, who, because they sort of came up before social media, uh, they, they just, they have this glow about them. And there are leagues of, of devoted fans who just view them as if they're larger than life and superhuman. And, um, you know, and obviously many professionals spent a lot of time carefully crafting that image, but it was really interesting for me to take a character like that from let's say pre-social media and move her into the modern age where she has daughters who are very much plugged into social media and sort of unpack her identity in a new time. Um, that was a lot of fun. Um, and then I think a big part of her character and the, um, their father, his character, um, is sort of born from this idea that as children, we all view our parents as sort of superhuman until they prove that they're very human. <laughs> and I don't mean that in a bad way necessarily. Yeah. I, I love the way the mystery to be solved in the book that everybody's working on, it drives you through the book, but I love the way it accelerates toward the end. And how do you plan that pacing as a writer when you're just sitting dreaming up the story arc? Yeah. Um, well, that's a great question because I got a lot of help with pacing from that wonderful editor of mine, Erin Stein. Um, and she, she explained it to me in a really wonderful way, which is that you basically, you have to have all of these dominoes lined up one after the other. And there has to be a really clear connection as to why one domino toppling does topple the next one. And as soon as they go, they go. So a lot of the beginning, let's say the first quarter, the first half is about setting up those dominoes in the reader's mind. And there is something very satisfying as an author to when you reach that like 50% mark or even that 75% mark to suddenly, you know, watch them sort of all fall down. Um, but I knew I wanted for the psychological thriller for it to be sort of unput downable, not to use that word, which has kind of lost its meaning now, but um, to be unput downable for the reader toward the end. Um, because we also have this idea established at the beginning that these girls, they'll figure out what where their mother is within seven days. So from the beginning, we had this ticking clock and by the end, it just naturally had to accelerate. Um, so I, I find it really interesting to explore different structures and um, see how they can add to, to tension. Wow, yeah, you sure succeeded with that. <laughs> yes, you did. Thank you. 
I think I read the last 175 pages in about five minutes. <laughs> well, I'd love to hear it. I don't well, read I'm that kidding, fast. But, but <laughs> it just went very, very fast. Um, Kathy and I love the quote in the book, beauty isn't, and I'll quote this, beauty isn't that which is beautiful. It is that which pleases us. What was the inspiration for that? And also, what do you define as beauty? Mm. So this was actually loosely inspired by a very old um, Provençal saying. But the idea behind it in my mind is that at the end of the day, taste is very subjective. And because of that, in my mind, almost anything can be beautiful. I mean, if you look at something carefully enough, it's almost impossible not to find the beauty in it, the something that will pique your curiosity, something that you could just sort of look at and admire forever. Um, that's really a big part of how I view life in general. And it's something I work really hard to maintain this idea that every person I meet is on some level, you know, very, very much and a miracle and interesting and something, someone to unpack forever and ever and ever. Um, but it's really about seeing the, the magical, the extraordinary in the mundane. Um, and, uh, okay, sorry. What was the second part of that? I just completely. What do you find, that. define as beauty ah. and, and you are defining it. And also what was the inspiration for the quote? But I think you also said it was Provençal. Yes. In, in um, origin. It was, or it is. Um, but, uh, really what what i view as as beautiful is anything that i guess makes you sort of pause and appreciate just how extraordinary the experience of being alive is so that's a very broad definition and that's exactly how i want to keep it <laughs> great um <laughs> love it but i think that especially for for women for women who are in industries like Mire, like um, Thai, um, if there's such an emphasis on very specific kinds of beauty and this emphasis on defining exactly what that means and who qualifies and who falls into these boxes. And what I enjoy as a writer is sort of exploring characters who don't neatly fit themselves into boxes, don't neatly fit themselves into these boxes. Um, so expanding these definitions is something that, yeah, is, is a very rewarding part of writing. Um, Fantastic. Yeah. Your mother and I are in a book group together that we have had since 96 or 97 and 1997, and we meet monthly. So all of us in the group have watched you grow up and we're so <laughs> proud of your stature as a writer. And do you know you. anyone in your age in your age group who's in a book club right now, or is it all online? Does anybody meet? Oh, I love that question. Um, okay, let me think about it. Oddly, I do know some people who are in book clubs, but unfortunately, most of my friends they sort of read what they want when they want, and then they'll chat and share recommendations with their friends. But I think there should be a return to the book club. I think yeah, there should be a return. I have asked club. my daughter that question 
Yeah. Because I asked her to please start a book group because she reads so much. Right. She's always recommending to me. She's quite a reader. And she said, Mom, I can't get any of my friends to read any books or nothing important or nothing she wants to discuss. So she can't see the point in trying to start a group because nobody wants to do it. Yeah, it's, I think what's challenging is that especially especially if you're in if you're in one of these jobs that it's a real grind day to day and you barely have a moment for yourself it is so difficult at the end of the day to say to yourself okay i'm really going to try to absorb these words on a page actively as opposed to passively watching tv i mean we all know this but luckily i i do have a few friends who feel the value of actively engaging with a page um, very strongly, and it's almost meditative for them, this act of reading. Um, but, you know, I think there's been a positive movement toward more and more people reading as in their free time. Um, this year, this unfortunate year. Uh, so we'll see. We'll see what the future holds. But Yeah, great. Yeah. Well, Thank hopefully you. next year is brighter. Um, you mentioned you had a, a book in the works now. Um, I don't know if you want to talk about it yet, but uh, what types of books do you see yourself writing 10 years from now as well? Ah. Well, it's, it's interesting you say that because the book I'm working on right now is an adult novel. And it is, the, most of the characters are in their late 20s early 30s there are a few characters older um and it's been interesting to move from young adult where my characters were you know 17 to 19 to this slightly older age range because i realized that it as as humans it takes us a while i mean years to process certain events in our lives and to process kind of to understand how our life fits into certain narratives, you know, to have those narrative epiphanies um, and then to be able to write them. So I think it took me about a decade to figure out how to write characters who are 17, 18. And just now I'm moving into being able to write characters who are facing challenges in their late 20s and early 30s. And I don't want to, I don't want to put myself in this, you know, silo of, oh, these are books that are appropriate for readers of these ages too, because I don't think that's it. I think, I think throughout our lives, you know, we're, we're learning more about ourselves and we're growing every day. Um, but just for me, I feel comfortable kind of working with, with characters in certain age groups at certain times. So yeah, I'm gonna start writing for, for adults. I guess that's the official category. Um, and my new book is it's about eight young strangers who are who receive a mysterious invitation to an infamous producer's house in southern Italy on the Amalfi Coast, um, and it actually is set right now in June 2021. We'll see where I push that. But the idea is it's not about the pandemic, but it doesn't ignore that the pandemic occurred. So it occurs essentially in a world emerging from this. Um, and it explores the characters, sort of their relationship with, with intimacy after a year of more or less being isolated and how their you know, connection with other human beings has changed. And um, 
absolutely more grief and loss, but it's also really fun and really fast paced and um, has oh, this I can't wait. of a mystery. I can't wait. For this. I was just going to say that. I can't <laughs> wait to read it. Well, we'd like to thank our guest on Late Boomers today, author of the new release, White Fox, Sarah Faring. Thank you so much, Sarah. That was just great. Thank you for having me. Your questions were just extraordinary. And this is such a pleasure. Thank you, Sarah. Do you have anything you want to add that we maybe didn't cover that you wanted to get across? Oh, God. We didn't discuss no, the villains so. and I mean... stuff, but I think they need to read the book. <laughs> I, I agree. Sarah, I serious no villains. Spoilers. No spoilers. <laughs> no spoilers. I agree because I have to say your, your philosophy and your wisdom throughout the book just floored me. Oh, thank you. I'm so honored. And we want to tell our listeners, you can find Sarah's books wherever books are sold, but particularly try to patronize independent bookstores if you have one nearby and you can pick up. And you can see Sarah on Instagram at Sarah Faring. Thanks so much, Sarah. Thank you all. for joining us on Late Boomers, the podcast that is your guide to creating a third act with style, power, and impact. Please visit our website and get in touch with us at lateboomers.biz. If you would like to listen to or download other episodes of Late Boomers, go to ewnpodcastnetwork.com. This podcast is also available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and most other major podcast sites. We hope you make use of the wisdom you've gained here and that you enjoy a successful third act with your own style, power, and impact. Have you ever asked yourself this question? Why is it so hard to make a buck? I know I have. Hi, I'm Sandra Yancey, founder and CEO of eWomen Network. What I have discovered after going from the brink of bankruptcy to running a multi-million dollar award-winning business is this. You can't build a million dollar dream hanging around minimum wage mindsets. My mission is one million women entrepreneurs generating one million dollars in annual revenue. So here's what I've done. I've created the mother of all entrepreneur success programs that you can access online on your time. It's called Monetize Me Now. It's a seven-module online course that is 100% my success formula, covering mindset, mission, management, motivation, marketing, and measure. Come on, take my hand, and I'll show you the way to learn to earn flowing revenue for your business. Visit monetizemenow.com for details. Calling all speakers. eWomen Network has speaking engagements all over North America that must be filled. Are you a gifted messenger, author, expert, or successful entrepreneur that can help women entrepreneurs grow their businesses? Our mission is to help 1 million fulfilled women each achieve $1 million in annual revenue. If you're a speaker that can help women prosper, go to eWomenNetwork.com and sign up as a pro member of our Speakers Network. That's eWomenNetwork.com.
Thanks for listening. This is the EWN Podcast Network.